Hello, I'm Eddie Cheever, and you're listening to Beyond the Grid. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. Now, if I were to ask you to name the American racing driver with the most F1 starts, who would you say? Mario Andretti? Perhaps Dan Gurney? Actually, it's neither of them. That accolade goes to Eddie Cheever, who's my guest this week. Between 1978 and 89, Eddie raced in 132 Grand Prix for the likes of Ligier, Tyrrell, Renault, Alfa Romeo, Haas, not that one, and Arrows, bagging nine podiums along the way. And he came oh so close to winning a few races as well. But before we get into what is a fascinating conversation with the man himself, here's a bit of background that will help you to appreciate Eddie's journey. Yes, he's American, born in Phoenix, the former home of the US Grand Prix. But he grew up and went to school in Rome. His parents weren't racers, but he had Italian mates and through them developed a love for, yes, you guessed it, Ferrari. And Ferrari quickly fell in love with Eddie after he dominated the European karting scene and had a hugely successful career in the junior formulas of single-seater racing. He signed a Ferrari Formula One testing contract at the age of just 19. A dream ticket, you might think, except that's not exactly how things panned out. I'm going to let Eddie grab the mic now to tell his own story. And what you're about to hear will tweet every emotion you have. You'll experience undiluted joy, lots of frustration, and the desperate sadness that follows the death of someone you know. There are stories on Enzo Ferrari, legendary McLaren boss Ron Dennis, Alain Prost, and more. Eddie's a racer through and through, and a passionate one at that. He's also a really engaging and thoughtful storyteller. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Eddie, how lovely to have you on the show. Uh, I'm chatting to you from the British Grand Prix, an event you know very well. You're at home in Indiana. And one of the things I said to the guys at the top of the show was that no American driver has started more Grand Prix than yourself. And a total of 132 races. Just how proud are you of that fact? I, I think the more you remove yourself from what you did when you were younger, the more introspective you are. I, I had a wonderful career in Formula One. I, I as, as a child, I never even remotely imagined that I would get to even stand close to a Formula One car. And everything in my life happened so quickly in the beginning that it was over before I even knew it was over. Those 10 years were, were wonderful. Lots of high spots, low spots, but it was, it is and remains the top of the racing world. And Formula One is just so unique. It's very hard to explain to somebody all the different sensations and moments that you have, like the first time you sit on the grid in Monaco. It's, it, it is so hard to focus on that first corner because I spent the whole time looking around the grid because I had read all these stories when I was younger about Moss and Stewart and Hill and, and it was, it's just difficult to explain. So am I proud of it? Yes. The length means nothing, but I'm proud of the fact that I got to race at such a great level in racing and in, in, in Formula One for such a long time. Did you always identify as an American driver, because yes, you were born in Phoenix, but you grew up in Rome. And so as a young up and coming racing driver, dominating karting, F3, F2, were you Italian or were you American in your mind? I moved to Italy when I was a child, when I was five. I have a memory 
of not being able to speak Italian. And then my next memory is speaking Italian. So it was an evolution where I went from being an American child to an Italian kid. But my, my parents, both of them, even after having spent 20 years in Italy, could not speak one word of Italian. So our home was very much an American home and my friends were very much Italian friends. When I started racing in go-karts, there came a point where they were going to pick the Italian team. And it was amazing how quickly I became Italian. I mean, it was something that I really wanted to race in. I was adopted by the Italian Racing Federation and throughout my career, I was both really. I mean, I, I am an American. I have two Italian children. I don't really feel that there is a need to be one or the other. I was lucky to be able to do both. Tell us where the racing bug came from. Was it something your father introduced you to or was it because you were in Italy and it was the whole Ferrari thing? I think it was something, I think racing was something my father would have liked to have done when he was younger, but didn't have the opportunity to do that. And um, when I was 12 for Christmas, my mother gave myself and my father two go-karts. I, I had no idea what the go-kart was. And we were leaving for a ski trip into Val Gardena from Rome, which is like a 10 hour drive. And we stopped by this go-kart track and um, he, he showed me the go-kart. I really had very little interest in it. They, they put me in it. I still didn't really have very much interest in it. We came back from skiing two weeks later and there was a night race. I remember just all this confusion. And um, I got in the go-kart, I started racing. People were bumping at me and waving their hands because I must have been getting in their way. And I got out and told my dad, that's enough of that. And he promptly put me back on and I guess I enjoyed it more and more, but it was something that my father wanted me to do. And my mother wanted me to spend time with my dad. So she thought he would enjoy that. And, and we had a grand time. The next five years, I spent almost every day with my father at the go-kart track. And happy memories, I guess. Phenomenal. At the same track where I was racing, Elio De Angelis was starting to race go-karts at the same time. This is the 100% truth. He used to practice signing his name when we were 13 as a Lotus driver. He would say, he was very talented. He could drive the car. So he would, he would draw the car. He would draw the car on a piece of paper and he would sign Elio De Angelis underneath it. And I looked at him like, you've lost your mind. And, and, and lo and behold, a few years later, he was racing in Formula One. Patrese was racing in Formula One. Eddie, there seem to be so many parallels between you and you mentioned Patrese because he was a very good skier as well. I, well, I'm assuming you were a good skier and you all came up together. Yes, we did. There was a whole generation. I, I said the Cesaris was the other driver, but yes, we all did. We all started racing go-karts. It was very competitive. There were two engine manufacturers, so there were, you were always getting... You were getting to test new things and new chassis and everything. And one, and Rick Patrese and I were teammates at, uh, at Yame, which had a Parilla engine and a Comet engine. And that year I won the European championship and he won the world championship and I finished second. So we were always, even at that age, there was a lot of competition, but he, Ricardo was a great athlete. He was really a good skier, as was Fabi. Fabi was another one who was a great skier. I think Fabi actually raced in the Olympics for Brazil or something. <laughs> I love it. That's quite tenuous. But Eddie, what about you, though, and the cart? At what point did it become an obsession for you and a realization that you could do this for a profession, for a career? I, I'd love to tell you that I had an epiphany after some race, but I didn't. You, 
My, my father supported it. My father drove me to all the races. He had a Porsche at the time, so we would have this go-kart on the top of the car with a mechanic, and I'd be in the back row because I was so small. And I remember racing and winning and winning more and more races, and then we became an official driver for Yame. When I went to the World Championships the last year that I competed, my father started talking about racing in a car. And uh, I went to some racing school in Italy called Henry Morrow. I don't know, he might still be alive. He was an Irishman. And I did a week in that. And then, and then just things started going quickly. And I ended up in England. So it was like, a, it was a gradual progression. It wasn't a bolt of lightning. It just made sense. I hated going to school. And I loved being in a go-kart. And I remember doing really badly one race in the wet. And it must have embarrassed my father. And he came and got me at school in the middle of a storm in Rome and put me in a go-kart. And I must have done three full tanks going around and around. And to this day, I will tell you that I learned things in those three hours that I was in a go-kart in the wet that I carried with me throughout my whole career. So a lot of what I did or I didn't do was thanks to my dad. I, I had to run two miles every night. If I didn't run two miles before dinner every night, I wouldn't be going to the go-kart track. And there was a series of physical things he wanted us to do. So all of these things just stacked up. Continuing the Italian theme, I just want to talk to you now about Ferrari. Fast forward a little bit to 1977. You're Ferrari's test driver. Every Italian schoolboy's dream. How did that deal come about? Okay, uh, we were racing in Formula 2 at Enna, behind Rosberg. I'm racing with Rosberg for the lead. KK was using all of the curves, which was something that was new to me because I'd never seen anybody do it. And in Enna, it's very dry, and I'm following, following him, trying to get by him. And I go off, and I go wide on some of the pebbles that came up that he kept spraying, and I spun. I spun, and I, I was out of the race. And I was... First or second or third in the championship then. So I was pretty high up and I'd had a good season. I had won in Rouen, I had won in other places. And I get, I go back home and on that Tuesday, I get a call that my mother says it's from Ferrari. And I think it's one of my idiotic Italian friends that are making fun of me, so I don't answer. And this goes on for a few times. And finally I go answer the phone and it was Daniele Audetto, who was the then team manager, asking if I wished to come to Maranello to meet the Commendator Ferrari. That in itself would have been a life accomplishment. I'm 18 at the time. So finally I, I go and I do this and I make a trip to Maranello and somebody picks me up at a bar that is two miles from the factory. I get in another car and I go in the factory in the back door and it was all very bizarre. And I'm brought into the Commendator Ferrari's office and his desk is up high. He's like on an island up high and you, you're, you have to like look up. And his male secretary leaves and the room is kind of dark and he's scribbling something on a piece of paper and he uh, doesn't even look up and he doesn't say hello, doesn't say anything. And just says, when you're driving my cars in Italian, when you're driving my cars, don't go on the curbs. <laughs> He was incredibly uh, nice. And I sat and talked to him for three hours about they wanted me to test the cars and I was going to sign the contract and, and his beliefs and the driver had to feel the race car and only do that by doing lots of laps. And I thought it was just a, a conversation. And as I'm leaving, I'm offered a piece of paper, which was a testing contract. 
that I didn't sign. And I said that I needed to have a lawyer look at it. And when I came back, I signed the contract and I tested for a week. And in that week, when I was at Ferrara, they'd pick me up in the morning. They'd bring me to uh, Fiorano where I would test. Then Reutemann was testing with Michelin tires. It was all very secretive. Reutemann was testing with Michelin tires. And I was testing with Goodyear's. And it, it went on and on for a week. And when I wasn't driving and they were repairing the car, I would go to the factory. I would walk from one department to the other. And I learned that the only trick to not get in trouble was to pay attention to all the employees who would get very animated when Ferrari would be walking through the factory. So I would just do what they did and I would spend time where they're building engines. I'd spend time where they were building cars. My mechanic was Quoggy, who was Nikki's mechanic when he got hurt in Nürburgring. So it, it was an incredible, an incredible week. It was anything I did in Formula One or in racing, as grand as it was, even winning the Indianapolis 500, paled compared to the excitement and the meaning of an Italian kid being in Ferrari at that age, getting to drive Lauda's car and just hanging out in the factory. Eddie, it's a fantastic story. And you say that you were a bit surprised by the phone call. I mean, you've been very successful in the junior formulas, but what one thing piqued their interest, do you think, in you, given that you were only 18? I was young, I was fast. I, I was convinced at that age that I was bulletproof. I mean, I, I went through a lot of Ron Dennis's Formula 2 cars and, and, and stupid things. I remember him telling me at Poe, I'm starting Poe, and I'm like three rows back, and there's a big hole between the car in front of me and the guardrail, and he says, don't go down the inside because you can do well in this race. And immediately, the first thing I did, I went down the right-hand side, took the whole left-hand corner off. And to this day, I don't know why I did it. But to the point, I don't... I don't I wasn't about to ask Ferrari, why am I there? I was just listening to what he was telling me. But they, they, their plan was for me to test and test and test some more and test some more. And they were going to have a race in Imola, a non-championship race in Imola. And I was meant to be the Ferrari driver. And in my contract, it was a long contract. Anyways, that, but that story does not have a good ending, but we'll move on to something else. Well, no, Eddie, I, just, I don't want to labour the point, but it's such a significant moment in your career. And I've, I've actually read that you've described what happened next as the stupidest thing you did in your career. And I just, have you spent time pondering what might have happened if you hadn't kicked them into touch? I mean, can you just, t I know you've told it before, but can you just tell us the story? I don't have that gene in my body where I sit back and say, I wished I had done this or I wished I had done that. But yes, I, I, so I, I leave there after the test and um, I had a contract with BMW. There was a sports car race at Vallelonga, which was where a girl I was dating lived, where I lived. And I thought this would be pretty cool. She's there, she'll see me, you know, she'll see me drive a race car. I, I was very full of myself. They were gonna pay me $500, $500 to drive this sports car. So I leave the pits, I do one lap, I do two laps. There's this, I think they were called tamburello. There's this very fast right-hander. And as I turn in full gear, as fast as it would go, the left-hand tire collapses. And the car goes under the guardrail and just flips. And my arm gets caught either as the door is breaking or against the door, and I break my left hand badly. And it's just, and, and everything was just dangling there. One of the drivers stopped to help me, looked at my hand, 
And this dummy fainted. So instead of helping me, he fainted. And when they came, they picked up him first. And I'm sitting here with my hand. I said, we'll be back in a minute. We'll be back in a minute. So long story short, they have to operate on my hand. And I go, I go through all of this. And I'm second in the championship. I have one more race at Estoril. I have this contract with Ferrari. I can't believe this is happening to me. And um, I get this lovely uh, telegram. That, those days were telegrams from Ferrari saying something to the effect of get better and you will be testing soon. And three or four days later, I read about Villeneuve signing a contract with Ferrari. And I, I immediately saw there's no way I'm going to get in Formula One now. So I, I have to go to Ferrari. Then I have to get out of my contract. And I made four trips. I drove from Rome to Modena, no appointment. Rome to back to Rome. And I did this back and forth with a, my hand in a cast. And finally, he sees me and he says, he says, are you sure you want out of this contract? And, and I stuttered. I don't even know what I said, but I'm sure I stuttered something. And by the way, I'm standing and he's sitting behind his desk. And I said, yes. And he said, OK. And he just put his head down. And just like I met him, he kept writing stuff on a notebook. Why were you so sure that you wanted to end the contract? I wanted to drive a Formula One car. I, I, I was on this I was on this rocket where I went from being a Formula Two driver to all of a sudden I had tested a week at Ferrari. My times were very close to Reutemann's. Uh, I did everything they had asked of me. And I, I desperately, there was nothing in the world I wanted more than to drive for Ferrari uh, that year. Don't forget Lauda was having problems with his health because he had had that accident in Nürburgring. But in those days, you did not have eight managers and four lawyers and three physical consultants. That didn't exist. It was me. And you had no confidence that they were going to give you a race seat. That's the fundamentals of it. I had confidence that I was going to be given opportunities to test and to run. And I knew I was going to get better and better. And I was in a great position at Ferrari. It was an immediate decision that I hadn't thought out at all. There were no such thing as test programs then. You didn't do that. There was no such thing as an 18-year-old driving a Formula One car. It just didn't exist. It was all new. So I stopped. I'm out of that contract, and all of a sudden I'm asked to drive the Ralt, Teddy Yip's car, which was, it was like, it was a whole different world. Come how... After you'd kick Ferrari into touch, can we call it a knee-jerk reaction or is that unfair? Oh, it was a stupid reaction. I don't think any part of my body was involved in the reaction. It was just <laughs> wrong. It, it was in... Did that ostracize you from Ferrari forever? Were there ever any possibilities with them ever again? Or I, to this day, I do a lot of work in consulting for IMSA at Ferrari, and I always feel like I'm going home to friends. I, I was in communication with him off. I bought cars from them. It was a very good relationship. I've had an excellent relationship with Ferrari, and I'm very lucky to say that. It was just, it was an, it, it was an error that I, it was very, very, very hard to recover from. I mean, my, my career was over. Can we just fast forward to 2012 when your son tested at Vallelunga for Ferrari? That must have been an well, what was it? It was. It must have been a very emotional moment for you, I guess. Uh, yes, yes, it was. Yes, the circumstances were different. Yes, Every, everything I did at Ferrari, I did in private at uh, Maranello. I mean, there were like three people. 
If I was using the throttle too much, the mechanic would say that the Comendatore said, don't use your throttle so much. If I'm hot and I wanted to get out of the car, they put their hand on my helmet and said, Nikki never gets out of the car. But my, my son had to do this with public and there were other three other drivers because he had had a great Formula 3 season. So, but yeah, there was, a lot of, there was a lot of emotion, but it was not aimed towards Ferrari. It was aimed towards my son being able to drive a Ferrari Formula 1 car. But the circumstances, I mean, his route is different. His route is more in sports cars. I thought it was very cool. You mentioned, you know, the Theodore, the opportunity with Teddy Yip. How, how did that come about in 78? I don't remember. I'm sure it was a call from somebody and, and, you, and you would listen. I just wanted to, I wanted to be in Argentina. I, I wanted to be at that first Grand Prix. I would have taken any, any offer. So this is a brand new car, brand new Formula One car with a teenager driving it. And I had had experience. This is a really cool story. This is a story that a race car driver will understand regardless of where he is in his career and whatever era he's racing in. So I had raced in BMW with the junior team and Hans Stuck and Ronnie Peterson and Hobbs were the senior team and I was part of the junior team. And we were very rambunctious. So I raced against Ronnie and Stuck many times at the Nürburgring and I got Ronnie's face a few times and he was angry and the team was angry, but it always worked out. And I, I, I had this, uh, to, to me, there was a racing god, and his name was Ronnie Peterson. So I'm in Argentina, and I'm doing the first laps, and they have, at the, past the pit straight, there's this long straightaway, a long right-hander, and another straightaway on the way back. And I finally managed to take this corner flat without taking my foot off the throttle. And on my left-hand side comes Ronnie, who lifts his hand in the middle of the corner and goes like this and disappears. I, I, I no, don't ever remember being as disheartened in my whole life. I felt like parking it, catching a flight home and saying, what have you done? And I didn't qualify for that. I didn't qualify. I didn't, we didn't even come close for qualifying that race. So you do two difficult races or, or you didn't qualify in the theater. Then you get the opportunity with Hesketh. Yes, it was the same thing. I mean, well, in, with, in a British accent, they told me that they would pay for my hotel and my airplane ticket and... You have 30 seconds to decide, yes or no. So I said, yeah, I turned up in there. And that was a much easier car to drive. The setup was better. I felt more comfortable. But they were a team that were trying to find a place to crash and crash in a way that nobody got hurt because of their heyday had gone. And they were just trying to revive something. And I think I broke an engine after, an engine broke after two or three laps. So. I think we can say it was a difficult start in Formula One. You then have to go back to Formula Two. And in hindsight, was that actually quite a healthy thing for you to sort of go back and sort of get your head together and sort of relaunch your career, really? Absolutely. I mean, I, whatever ego I had developed to that point, I had to just totally walk away from that and say, if you want a race, you're going to have to start at the bottom again and, and build it piece by piece. So I, I did a year with Ron, which was not a good year because I think he was, the whole Ferrari thing had been irritating for him because he was the one that was guiding me to that point. Remember I was racing Project 4 and when the Ferrari offer came, I just said, Ron, I've got to go do this. And um, I, I don't think he really liked that very much. So I had to go back and drive for him 
in Formula Two, and, and we did. We had a horrible year, so it even went worse in '78. And then um, Ozella, Ozella turned up, and I really had nothing going. This is a guy out of Turin, who, who did his engines, did his cars, and he had this crazy idea that he wanted to bring Pirelli into Formula Two. And we did a lot of testing, and by the time the first race came, we were we were pretty strong. We were we were pretty strong. We had a great season. We won a lot of races. I think I finished fourth in the championship. Could have won the last one had it rained in Thruxton. But it was a it was a really I really had to relearn what it took to just totally be involved in what the team was doing instead of just turning up like a Superman. Were there any discussions when you were with Ron in '78 about? you know, Project 4, taking over McLaren. Were you aware of any of that at that point? No, I I, rem- I met Ron after I won my second Formula 3 race in Silverstone. I, I, I can still remember. He had, I think he must have had plaid pants on and checkered shirt or something because he, he stood out. And he, he was just very brash. And he said, do you want to test my Formula 2 car? I said, sure. Yeah, right. Yep, yep. And, and I, I had an incredible, everything I learned at that point in racing, I learned from Ron because we went, he then started running the Formula 3 car that we had. Then we, he picked some races in Germany, which we won. And he just started building all these pieces that gave his Formula 2 team BMW Works engines. I got to drive for the junior team, but we got free Works engines. And then from that, he built what became one of the best Formula 1 teams of all time. And how, how would you describe your personal relationship with him? I, I was with him all the time. There was always something to be learned. Uh, he didn't have that much, but what he had was shiny and pristine and perfectly in order and, uh, and uh, very demanding. But he was really good at preparing. He's the one that told me how to prepare for a race and what to do and that was a period where he was trying, we were forever trying to raise money. Ron will go down in my memory as a single person that knew more elements of what it takes to be successful in motorsports. Just look at what he did at McLaren, unbelievable. And the run that McLaren had with Honda, I mean, he just would, he was just so good at putting all these pieces and the people together. When you ran your own team in IndyCar, did you find somewhere in the back of your mind you were trying to recreate what you'd learned from Ron? Absolutely. Really? Many times in my life I've tried to recreate things by having watched him. I mean, he really had a difficult time. They, they confiscated our truck and Nürburgring once. Why? I can only imagine Ron in that situation, exploding. No, he was pretty calm about it. They came, it was something that happened two years before, and they came, locked up the truck and confiscated it. And he went away and solved the problem. And we, there were always, you know, it, it was hard to get from race to race sometimes because there wasn't enough enough funding you know, or there wasn't enough pieces. And he was always doing deals. It was another deal after another deal on top of another deal. For people who only ever knew Ron in Formula One, stories like this are unlikely really you know we've only ever known the pristine motorhome and the you know he was the first guy that put tiles on the floor of all the pit garages that he came to around the world and he just sort of raised the bar in every every area really it's it's hard to think of him struggling imagine what it was like when he was struggling but remember he was a gopher at some point in a racing team who then became the chief mechanic 
who then started Project One. He didn't change name every year because he wanted to change name, because Project One had an issue, then Project Two had an issue. Then, and until he finally worked out all of this, he set his sights on McLaren. And that, from a business perspective, what he did at McLaren was masterful. Maybe not the most elegant of things, but was masterful. And he delivered with Barnard and, and, and the drivers. He, I mean, it was phenomenal. Everybody played catch up with Ron Dennis for many years. Now, come on, Eddie. How often were you on the phone to him when you were in Formula One saying, come on, Ron, please let me drive for you. I want that McLaren tag. I want that McLaren Honda. Only twice. We had two long talks and they got stuck on money. Which years? Can you, can you reveal? I think it was the year after De Cesaris was there. But I, I don't recall. I, but I do recall the telephone calls and they were... I, I was probably number four on all of his calls that he was doing, trying to figure out which piece would fit. But I, to this day, I have the highest respect for Ron. And it's definitely a, an enormous amount of respect for the things that he's managed to achieve. Phenomenal. I don't recognize McLaren now. I look at McLaren and I, okay, they say it's McLaren. It looks like a McLaren, but something's missing. Now look, what about your career? I want to talk to you about your first full season now. It's 1980. Osella, who you've been doing Formula 2 with the previous year, they've decided to graduate. But, but I think, was the car 200 pounds overweight or something? Is that right? It was insanely heavy. But you, you have to take a step back. We had found, through some friends of the family in Rome, a road to getting the state monopoly cigarettes, Monopolio di Stato, MS, to sponsor a little bit the Formula 2 team which they did. And I think we paid for some engine rebuilds with that. And then we were just cheeky enough to go in parliament and try to convince them to sponsor Ozello's Formula One team. And they said yes. So it was a miracle that we got to the point that we had enough money even to build a car, but it was very heavy. I remember going to Interlagos and it was the earlier version of Interlagos. It was like a big oval and incredibly fast. And this thing was a bear to drive. It was, and we, and where we had ground effects were the skirts then. And, and skirts had the very bad habit of working for three or four laps and then getting knocked up and you losing part of your downforce. So you were always terrorized that you would, you know, you go into a corner flat fifth and there's no way it would stick because the skirt would have gone up. But yet that was a handful. We didn't, we did not qualify for many races, but in the end we did. And when it got better and better, I remember running third in, uh, in Hirama, third in Hirama, I forget who I was behind. And it was a non-championship race, but it started to get, it, it turned around. It was, we every race we had more and more downforce as we started to understand the car. It's interesting because the Formula One paddock then sort of re-woke up to Eddie Cheever and Uncle Ken, Ken Tyrrell, saw the talent and, and you went there for 81. Now that was seriously cool because I was already, I had gone through all this and I understood the importance of being there and talking to Ken. And Ken invited me to dinner, I think it was at Imola. And he, he talked for like 40 minutes and I could, I had no, I thought it was just buying me dinner. I thought maybe he feels far, sorry for him, he's dying, buying me dinner. And we talked and talked and he kept asking me all these questions. And, and he said, I would like to, I'd like to sign you to an option. And uh, I said, okay. And I didn't want Ozella to know this. It was all, it was the first secretive thing I had to do. So um, I, I, I signed the option and, um, and it was late. It was like, it was like a November date, like at the end of November or something. An hour before the option expired, Ken called me. One hour before it was over, I thought, well, you know, 
And I, I, I was ready to go um, race again for Rosella, which I wasn't looking forward to. Why did he leave it so late? I don't know. I, I never asked him that question. I was just happy. I was just happy. So I, I signed the, con the, the contract was already inside of the option. So once you, once that started, the contract started. So I get on a plane to go to, uh, to England. I drive up to the factory. I sit down with him and immediately they go to this barn where there was a barn. It was nice inside, but it was a barn. And the race car is sitting here and, uh, the, and they had a bunch of clay inside of the chassis because we were going to do my seat. I had never done a seat in clay before. And they, they said, this is, I mean, like every fourth word was Jackie Stewart. This is the seat, Jackie Stewart. This is the pedal, Jackie Stewart. This is the gear lever, Jackie. So well, it was great. I thought that was wonderful. I mean, I, 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 was, I was enthralled by it. But then that was the start of a really, a deep learning curve, like a really intense, regimented learning curve. Again, Ken was looking for money all year long. We, were, we struggled the whole time for finding funding and finding funding. So I had been tormented to that point in my career always by having, by the struggle for finances, which maybe happens to everybody except for the first two or three teams. So that, that started to weigh on me at the, towards the end of the year. You say you learned a lot. Was one of the things discipline? Do you feel you became a better driver in 81? I, I, no comparison. You were not allowed to not be disciplined. And you were called on it immediately. Immediately. And when you say Uncle Ken, a lot of people might say that out of kindness, Uncle Ken, that was Uncle Ken who was going to put his thumb on you if, you know, do it this way. Do you remember when all those, we had that driver's strike or something in Zolder, all the drivers wanted to get out. Well, I'm a Formula One driver now, so I'm gonna get out just like everybody else. He didn't say one word. We stop at the grid, I undo my belt buckle and I go to get out and he has the full weight of his hand on my helmet. And the more I push to get up, the more he pushes to keep me down. So I just buckled up my belts and that was that. He never said one word afterwards. Never addressed it, I never addressed it, we never talked about it. What a wonderful insight into Ken. Wow. Now, there's one thing. You go from there, and it, it seems to me that you gravitated towards continental-based teams. You had most of your success with Ligier and Renault, or was it just a needs must? It wasn't like you were seeking to go to those teams. It was just you didn't feel more comfortable in those environments, given the Italian and the... No. no you, I, you're very kind and you're giving me a lot more credit for having thought through things than I actually did. No, Ligier was a well-financed team. It was very hard for me to tell Ken Tyrrell that... Um, and, I, and he offered me a very generous second-year extension of the contract. It was very hard for me to tell him that I needed to go someplace where, you know, and I, it was very hard to say. It was very awkward. I'm sure I did a very poor job of it. I couldn't have done such a bad job because he invited me to their Christmas party, made me dress up as Father Christmas, which I, I still remember to this day. But yes, I, I then went to Ligier because Lafitte had been winning races. Ligier was a fast car. They were French. I didn't really speak enough French, but I, I could understand them. And I thought I can measure myself up a driver that's almost won the championship and is winning races. So I was... I saw it as an upward step in the ladder, and it, uh, I had a great time at Ligier. Like, Ligier was exactly the opposite to Ken. There was no discipline at all. How good was the car? We had this new design that Jabouille, Jabouille was in charge of the cars at that point. 
with his own technical staff. This new car that had a very long wheelbase and it had skirts that went all the way around the back. And it was a really big, long tunnels. And we could never get it to work properly. So we thought we thought it was going to be a good car. And uh, we started this season with the car they had the year before with a Matra engine in it. And I finished second. I finished third at Zolder and then second in Detroit with the old car. And I thought, oh, this is going to be unbelievable. We're going to get this new car and it's going to be... I mean, we're going to go into the future. And I'm out running Lafitte while all this is happening. But so I, the car was good. It, was, it had a good balance. It was very, it was easy to drive. The engine made a lot of noise. It didn't really go anywhere. It didn't have very much torque. But it was very good at tight circuits like Detroit because you get on the throttle very early. Um, so getting back to he said about how good the car was. We went to Monte Carlo with the new car and it was hideous. I mean, just terrible. So they parked that and we went back to the old car and the rest of the season we had we had the old car. What was wrong with the new car? Oh, we just couldn't get it balanced. We couldn't get the, um, you couldn't get it to be consistent. I had an incredible amount of understeer and we're in the middle of the season now. So it had a lot of understeer and it just wouldn't turn. You mentioned that first podium, that P3 at Zolder in 82. It was a difficult weekend for the sport. The greatest unhappiness imaginable occurred before race day. In the closing stages of the last practice session for today's Belgian Grand Prix, motor racing and the world lost a much-loved and truly courageous sportsman when Gilles Villeneuve, fighting to improve his starting grid position, hit the March car of Jochen Maas in a 150 miles an hour accident which must intensify the need to reduce cornering speeds and improve Grand Prix safety. Villeneuve's Ferrari was completely shattered and the driver hurled against the catch fencing. Tragically, heart massage and specialist treatment in Louvain failed to save his life. In practice, going down the back straight, Mass and Villeneuve are ahead of me. And I come out of the chicane and I could tell there had been an accident. And I'm, I'm talking maybe a second, two seconds after Villeneuve had his accident. And it was like there was a rag doll in the catch fence. And it, it, was, it was one of the most shocking things I have ever seen. And it happens to you so quickly that you have a really hard time to under, understand what just happened, but it was, it was terrible. And that, that was a, if Villeneuve were to pass mass a hundred times, nothing would happen 99 times. It was just being in the wrong place for him at the wrong place at the wrong time. Villeneuve was different than any other race car driver I have ever met. I raced with him in Formula Two at Poe with Ron. That was my first experience with him. Then maybe in 77 in Mossport, I raced with him in a BMW. And we both managed to destroy the car, but he was just totally different than any other person I've ever met that drove a race car. He was just fearless. I mean, the, the way he flew his helicopter, the way he drove his race car, the way he lived his life, the guy was just, just always consistently on the limit. How did that image of seeing Gilles in the catch fencing affect you as a racing driver and as a man? Did you ever consider giving up? Did it reduce your commitment, your love of the sport? I, I, I don't think I would be one of the few race car drivers of that era to say I did not expect to live through it all, but I wanted to do it so badly 
there was nothing else in my life that had an equal importance to that. Why did you want to do it so badly? What was it about driving race cars? That was the top. That was as far, there was nothing farther than Formula One. That was, that was Mount Everest. That was the most difficult, most complicated form of motorsports in the globe. And there was nothing that compared to it. And there was, since as a child, that's what I wanted to do and define myself in that position. Eddie, was it the thrill of driving that you loved or was it the thrill of competition? Absolutely, the thrill of competition and the driving of the cars. But after you've done, after you've done the first day and a half of winter testing, you know what you have. This is the car you have. You've got to make the most of it, which towards the end of my career was very depressing because there'd be cars that have 100 horsepower more. There's nothing you can do about it. This is what you got. You say that Gilles was fearless. Did you respect him as a racing driver, though? Oh, yeah. But, but I, thought he, I thought he was also, you know, a few cents short of a dollar sometimes. But, 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 he, but and the talent, the things he would do with the race car. There's pictures of him completely crossed up. All four tires smoking. What a freakish accent. What a crazy, I mean, to clip the back of somebody's car. You know, it was just, it was just very sad. I mean, Italy, I've never seen Italy mourn as much for the death of an athlete as I did when Villeneuve died. Well, Eddie, let's look at 83 now. You move from Ligier to Renault to be Alain Prost's teammate. I mean, going into that season, it looked on paper that this was the moment. Is that how you felt when you signed for them? I had watched the battles that year between Arnoux and Prost with great interest because everybody thought one of them was going to win the championship. And it was either Arnoux or it was Prost. And I thought, and I had raced, don't forget, I had raced against Arnoux in Formula 2. Arnoux and Tambe in Peroni. We had all raced together in Formula 2, so I had done many laps with them. Come Monza, uh, Renault makes me a great offer. Other t- I had other offers from other teams, but they didn't have a turbo engine. So I thought just the fact of having... Tur- it was we're at the beginning of the turbo era, era, and the, and that year they had had skirts on the car, so they had a lot of downforce. They had two magical things: a l- unlimited horsepower and a lot of downforce. What's wrong with that? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that. How can that be wrong? Yes, Prost is phenomenal. I don't speak French. I will be a number two driver, but that's not a big deal. Did you sign as a number two? Yes. Did that great? Did you think twice about that? No, I, I thought it was a logical. I, it, it, it was one of the faster cars. So I, I signed and all of a sudden they changed the rule and they, they changed the configuration of the cars and that big advantage is gone. God, the first car I tested was with the ground effects. It was, it was incredible. I had so much downforce and so much power. I couldn't, I mean, all you had to do is turn this lever and you had more power. It was, it was phenomenal. We changed the, the way the car set up to fit the regulations. We go to Brazil. It's a pretty tough weekend. We go to Long Beach, the car, I'm running well, but the gearbox breaks. And we just settled in, settled in, and it, and, uh, and it, was, it was going well. I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed the season. Um, then I started having a series of mechanical failures. In Silverstone, I was really quick, and the car was really good. And I think I had a, an electrical connection go wrong. I, uh, my daughter, I had a daughter that was born, my first daughter, and she died. Um, a month after Silverstone, that kind of, that was really hard because my then wife almost died also. So it was, it was a difficult time right in the middle of this season. And, um, you know, there were, there were some great races. There were some races that weren't so good. I remember being behind Prost in Germany and the throttle cable broke. 
I remember being really good in Monaco and the alternator broke and it was, I kept having all these mechanical issues that, that kind of took the lead out of my pencil. I mean, it was, at the end it was becoming difficult, but I, I never had any problems with Prost. I, I thought Prost was great to work with. The, the team had some internal issues. Was it very political? Yes, it was. But, but then again, I say it was political, but I, I speak enough French to tell a young lady in Paris that she's beautiful, and that's about it. So, so actually, was it actually an advantage not speaking French because it sort of washed over you a bit, some of the politics? It did until we started talking about what to do to the car because everything would have to... I would get what I needed in bits, bits and drabs. But um, no, it, 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 was, it was a heavy environment. It, it was a heavy environment. I mean, Prost is... That was the first time I met a driver or I raced as, as a teammate. I always thought your number one job is to beat your teammate. And you were not going to be Prost as a number two driver. There was no way. You could do it every now and again. I'd ha- I'd, I would do well in Montreal and in Detroit and Brands Hatch. There were certain places that I felt more comfortable than others. But Prost is, uh, as the Italians would say, another level. Where, where was he particularly good? I always lost the back end of the car early on in a run. And I had a hard time getting them to make changes so that I could lean more on the back of the car. I was just amazed at how fast he could go without using his equipment. And that's a talent. That is a, that is a talent. When you look at Senna, you would hear this beep, 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 bop, 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 bop. The throttle was always, always playing with the throttle. Pross was diametrically opposite to that. It almost, when you heard it, almost sounded boring. It was just very, very tidy, very, very careful not to use the tires too much or the brakes too much or, or anything. And were you surprised that it all came to an end for you, but it came to an end for him as well at the end of that season? Did that surprise you? I'm not, to get, I'm not going to get into those, do- those details because it was kind of private and all that happened. But no, I was not surprised at all when, when at a certain point he was leaving Renault. And I, I actually had a, after my then wife had been ill, I, she came to Germany, the German Grand Prix, and I had a meeting with... Uh, with a team manager that I didn't go to to talk about that year's contract because I still thought I was going to be a number two at Renault and I was looking for other opportunities. So um, I turned that down. I, I indirectly turned that down. Then the problems that Prost happened at Zandvoort happened afterwards, but I, the die was already cast that I was leaving. Damn it. Eddie, if you'd had a manager, I think this, this tale could have been very different. <laughs> Is that a fair comment? I have had no. That's not at all. But I, you, I have lost so many friends in racing that I cannot look in the mirror and say, "Oh, I was so unlucky. I was so incredibly lucky." I, I stopped counting after a certain point. I stopped counting how many people I've known are no longer here because of stupid accidents. Or while we're talking, teammates, we, we've had a little chat about Prost, um, Ricardo Patrese, uh you came through with him, Alfa Romeo teammates. What was it like being up against an Italian driver in an Italian team? Or it takes us back where we started this conversation. Were you an Italian? <laughs> Had we both been in a Williams, it would have been a lot of fun. But since we were in an ex-Formula 3 team that was trying to run the government-owned Alfa Romeo Formula 1 team, it was a nightmare. 
the, the first race that we went to, I finished fourth. And I thought, this is great. Fourth, a few thirds, you know, I can, I can do this and try to make it better. I never, I never got one more point in two years. I don't know, I might not have finished 10 races. And it was the same with him. So we were fighting for scraps that were left on the table. There was nothing there. I don't, I think the second year we made some engine changes and we were preparing at Bolocco to go to a track. I don't, I think I, I detonated six engines in a row before we went to Brazil. It was that bad. And it was that bad. The only high point, the really high point, this is, this is a good story, is the first year we had mechanical injection. And all of a sudden they had this brainwave that, oh, if we do electronic inject injection, we are going to, we're going to go in front of McLaren. So we're, we're getting ready to go to Monaco. Monaco's the next race. And they get this, this injection working pretty well. And it worked. It was phenomenal. I, th I think I qualified fourth or something. I, I, I think it was fourth. It was incredible. And uh, something broke. Again, I don't remember what it broke, what broke. But then from that point on, it was just like, it was like a, as if they were, it was like it was dead. Nothing, nothing ever changed. Nothing ever. So we started fighting amongst each other like cats and dogs because there was a rare chance that that only engine, that engine was going to have five horsepower more. I mean, it would be all this anxiety inside of the team. It was just, it was terrible. It was terrible. So my only, my only pleasure was to beat Ricardo in the race. And his only pleasure was to beat me in the race because we couldn't compete against anybody else. There was, we just couldn't keep up with anybody. And they came, they built a new car and it was, it was a, Horrible, it was a well-paid, horrible experience. Was it almost a relief when that came to an end? Yes, yeah, I, I had had enough, I, I was, that was enough. But by then I was, by, by that point I was becoming disenchanted with Formula One. What, what aspects of it? Nothing to blame in Formula One, it's just that it is so technical that if you're on the wrong side of technology, you, you can be... It's the competitor in you, isn't it? Getting frustrated that you're not having... It's, just no, it's not fun anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it, a, was it a real shot in the arm to then go and have success in sports cars, feel what it's like to taste the champagne again? Did you sort of fall back in love with racing again? Uh, totally, 100%. And with uh, nothing against Pavanello, but he was not cut out to be running Formula One cars or Formula One teams. So then when I was invited by Walking Show, whom I knew from when I was racing Formula 3 days at Modus, he was their Formula Atlantic driver somewhere. I, I remember this mountain of a ring. <laughs> yeah, He's yeah. enormous. <laughs> and he was one of the best guys I ever drove for. It was just wonderful. I remember testing a car at Snedderton, this big, powerful machine with so much downforce done by Tony Southgate. I mean, it had all... It had all, all the parts that you really enjoyed. And I really liked that because, and I'm not embarrassed to admit it, we had the best sports car, period, period. I mean, it would go, driving at Silverstone was just, it was, it was just a wonderful experience. And you're right, it was very uplifting. And it made a, it made a big, it really made a big difference in my outlook. But I thought Formula One was done. Now I'm going I'm to focus on sports cars. And Derek and I won the first race for Jaguar in 30 years at Silverstone. That was a big deal. And, they were always had a little bit better engine, which is good fun. And, and was TWR a better race team than a lot of the teams you race for in Formula One? Absolutely. He, he motivated everybody in the team. And it was, it was just, it was great. He hired Derek and I, because we were both out of race cars. And we were still these, we still had the Formula One ego, you could say. 
And we turned up at our first race in, uh, in Monza. <laughs> and um, we hadn't practiced driver changes. I start the race, we're doing really well. I come in and Derek was not happy with the pace I was getting out of the car. So D Derek's like a bulldog. He grabs me and just drags me out of the car. And I'm, I'm like rolling on the floor. So I thought, okay, then get in the fucking car by yourself then. And my job was to click his belts. And I, I, I was so angry that we probably lost 15 seconds. He's yelling at me, I'm yelling at him. Walkinshaw says nothing. Not a word, and we, I, I forget how the, price on, how the race went. But we go to the next race and we're called early in the morning and he made us practice pit stop, changing seats for two hours, just in and out and in. Walkinshaw did. Walkinshaw Tom, yeah. just standing there like a statue. Again, 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 again. Well, we, never, we, we learned that lesson. And we went there and, and there, we had a great season. But we could have won Le Mans too. One time we lost it with 45 minutes to go, the little screw in the gearbox. There were little things, but it was a gr great guy to, to work for. I, I really enjoyed the time I spent with Tom. Yeah, big Tom. Now, Derek Warwick was your teammate for longer than anyone else that season in uh, with Jaguar and then, of course, at Arrows. We've had him on the podcast and there's a great story where he says you bulked him, I think, in qualifying at, I think it's Monaco, but he, he had a few choice words. I mean, to, just describe the relationship with Derek. Excellent. Total different outlook on life. He couldn't be more different. Um, I, I always admired his tenacity. Could be very quick on any given day. We had great battles in, in uh, Jaguar, which were a lot of fun. We were teammates to start with. Then they put us in opposite cars. Why did they do that? Why did they separate you? Um, I don't know. I don't, stop, I, you, stop you scrapping. I the only thing we were interested in is being faster than the other one. That was our, and that doesn't work in sports car racing. Sports car racing, you have to be altruistic. I would never use the word altruistic with a Formula One driver. That's, it's, that's not synonymous. It just doesn't work. So, but in sports cars, you have to do that. You're going to get in it pretty soon. I, I had a great time. I have lots of funny stories that I cannot share with Derek and... But I, he, was, he was brutally honest, never played politics, loved a good battle on the track. I thought it was fun racing with him. Of all my teammates, I would say he might be the one that, that I enjoyed going to the racetrack more with. And is that why it lasted so long, maybe? It lasted so long because Jackie Oliver kept hiring us. <laughs> but it was a happy team and you had some success. There was the podium in 89, wasn't there? I was the only one that had podiums. He didn't have any podiums, if I recall that correctly. I think that still irritates him. <laughs> the Monza one, he, was, he couldn't have been five feet behind me for lap after lap after lap. And I finished third and he finished fourth. Yeah. And I had a good podium in uh, Phoenix with an incredibly hot race. What was it like racing at home, actually? Your hometown in Formula One. Which one? Monza or? No, no. So, well, both, I suppose. But I was Phoenix. I was thinking specifically, yeah. I was being facetious. Yeah, well, I, I know you were. It was, it was good. It was very hot. I, I went there a week before and to try to get used to the climate. There's no way you get used to the climate. It's just too hot. There was a lot of attrition that race. And I spent most of the race right behind Patrese. But it was good. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, it was, it was fun. It was very hot. It was a very hard trust. It was a very hard race. Very physically demanding. You just bleh, lap after lap, heat after heat. You could feel, when you come in the pits, you could feel the heat going through the car. And it was, 
It wasn't pleasant, but finishing third was a, it was a great accomplishment. I was, um, I think, Prost won and Patrese was second, I was third, if I recall. But I enjoyed being third in Monza more than I did being third in Phoenix. So, Eddie, what was the best F1 car you drove? You mean the most competitive or at the moment the one that I enjoyed the best one? Uh, get, give me both. Which one did you enjoy driving the most and which was the most competitive? The Ferrari that Niki Lauda had tested in Monza was the most exciting Formula One car I ever drove. I went from a Formula Two car, which was kind of industrial compared to a, what a Ferrari F1 was at the time. It had a, an H-box gearbox where you could you almost couldn't make a mistake with the gears and the brakes were incredible and it fit like a custom-made shoe. The, the engine would rev, my goodness, it must have revved 2,000 revs more than anything I'd ever driven before. And it was just, I mean, when you put a new set of tires on, it was incredibly, it was a, so well balanced. There was a corner in the back where you would take almost flat and forth. And at that age, you look at corners as, fast corners as, I can take it flat or I can't take it flat. I wasn't bright enough to understand there's a middle ground where you can take a little bit of throttle off. So I had tried taking it flat and I, I kept getting crossed up. So it was the last day and I just went through it flat and I spun and I must have knocked through five, six rows of catch fence. It took a minute to get me out of the car and I thought, that's it, I'm done. I won't be driving here anymore. And they didn't say anything, they didn't say a thing. <laughs> they said, are you okay? And I said, yes. They said, okay, we'll get the other car out and we'll be out here in 20 minutes. And they said, okay. But isn't that attitude exactly what Enzo Ferrari loved in a driver? Yeah, but, but, yes, but I, I expect more than once, the Quoggy would tell me, stop fiddling with the throttle. Either accelerate or don't accelerate. So I, I had that habit in go-karts of getting the car loose and keeping it that way. But they were very involved in what you were doing. I mean, he had to have that, that opinion to have stayed as long with Vilnius. I mean, Villeneuve had that horrible accident in Japan, if you recall, his first race. I mean, that, that was like, like, oh my goodness. What about the most competitive car then that you raced? The best car I ever raced would have been the Ligier at Detroit. It was really well balanced. At the start of the race, um, Jabouy decided to put a soft pair of Michelins on the front, which you never did, and it, it worked like magic. I mean, my car was good throughout the whole race. The, the Renault was really good in Monza. I lost second gear right at the chicane before the first Lesmo, which was a pain. But I, I would probably say the Renault was the best car throughout the season. At any specific race, I'd have to say the Ligier in Detroit. I'm reminded too of that one-off race you did with Haas um, in 86. And I think Adrian Newey and of course, Ross Braun was at Arrows as well, wasn't he? Both guys have gone on to have phenomenal success. Were you impressed by them at the sort of early stages of their careers? I was impressed by how organized and precise everything Ross Braun did. He always had a list going of something. Never, never seemed to lose his cool over anything. No, I, I, I enjoyed working with Ross. Um, that race that I did for Beatrice in Detroit was, was, it was just a flash in the pan. Though, but the car, I mean, the car was exceptional. It was really good around Detroit. And I hadn't driven a car in forever. You were unbelievably quick in that car, given that it was a one-off and you'd barely driven it before going into qualifying. I think you, you lined up 10th on the grid and Alan Jones was five rows further back. A, I was very enthusiastic to be there. B, I understood that if I went faster than the drivers that were there, 
they might reconsider who was going to drive the race. And the most important thing is I was having a great time. I had absolutely no responsibility. None. None. I, I took my green overalls that I had from Benetton Alpha Days on the plane. I was taking the Benetton logos off. It. <laughs> Can you imagine doing that now? I had to borrow a pair of shoes from somebody. I didn't have any shoes. I, all my uh, racing shoes were at uh, walking shows. I had a helmet that I had used it all for mail, so I put some tape on it, and I sat in the car, and it felt really good. So I, I was just having a, a good old time. Was there a conversation about doing more for the team? I actually ended up, I remember being in Switzerland in a business meeting where they were trying to figure out what to do. Who was there? It was, there were people that were considering to buy the team. I remember not sitting in on the meetings, but sitting close to the office where that was happening. Formula One, Formula One is like watching ducks swim across a river. It looks very calm on the top, but there's a lot of shit going on underneath. Now, look, what about you as a driver? When were you at your peak? I think you're at your peak when you're, there comes a moment when you're physically as fit as you're going to be, and you're as confident as you're going to be. And if that happens in a car that has potential to win races, that brings out a little extra in you probably at Ligier or Tyrrell. I had some really good races at going at Renault. I, I had a really good British Grand Prix going, and I had a really good Monaco, and I had a really good Germany, but there were mechanical issues. So I, 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 I don't know. I could, in an IndyCar, I could tell you, because it's a lot simpler formula, and you have to do one thing and one thing only at the Indy 500. That's keep your foot on the throttle. So I can tell you where at that point, it started going down the other way. But in a Formula One car, it's very difficult because it's so technically dependent. I mean, you take Hamilton and put him in the worst car in Formula One, he might do a little bit better than they're doing now, but he sure as hell is not going to win a race. Whereas if you put the worst driver in Hamilton's car, it's highly probable he'll finish in the top three. I probably will be criticized for saying that, but I'm not too far off. It might be the top five, but it won't go down much farther than that. So. It's wonderful in Formula 1 to watch a driver like Hamilton right now who is incredibly focused, and he might end up beating Schumacher's record. And then you look at the, the cars he has with Mercedes and his 10 and everything. They just keep getting better and better and better. So there's almost no limit to what they're capable of doing, but it makes it hard to watch. I, I find it really hard to watch a car continuously win every Grand Prix. It, uh, that's not a criticism. It's just... An opinion. Did you find it hard when Schumacher was dominating? I'm a Ferrari fan. That's a very good point. And there I'm showing a human element in that. When Ferrari was winning, when Lauda was winning, I thought it was magic. When Schumacher was winning, I thought it was very impressive. It's interesting that we're talking about Schumacher and Hamilton because I think they would both claim that they played a big role in creating those teams that went on to dominate. Did you spend enough time trying to bring the best engineers to the teams that you were racing with? My career effectively stopped after I left Renault. I, I mean, I, we worked really hard at Aeros and we had the Megatron engine, which had a lot of power, but other people had passed and they were ahead of us. And the few places we could do well was at Monza. It was a, a well-balanced car and it was good in the fast corners, but we, didn't have, we did not have enough assets to sit down and, and do that. When I went to Renault, I was when I went in the factory, I was shocked at how much stuff there was. There were so many engines, 
lined up in a row in so many gearboxes and so many cars and there are all these people, but it was like a beehive. There were people everywhere and I thought, wow. I mean, this, and, and we did lots, lots of development programs were done in that year. None of them turned out to be, there was some point where we had all these exhaust pipes put like spaghetti tubes at the, underneath the under, under body of the car. And that was supposed to give us the advantage to go ahead of the whole field. And it didn't pan out because it really worked when your foot was on the throttle. It didn't work too good when your foot wasn't on the throttle. I, I think to do that, yes, it takes a character like Schumacher's and Hamilton's, but it also takes having, I mean, what comes first, the driver or the team? Lauda did the same thing. Lauda took Ferrari, which was useless. I mean, they were even racing in sports cars because they couldn't figure out what they're doing. And he made it into the bottom Ferrari. And then look what Schumacher did. And, and they keep building on that. I mean, if you think of all the people he had the year that he won, Ross Braun, Rory Byrne, there were so many of them. Like, wow, wow. Now, you mentioned Indy. A couple of questions on that. How come you adapted so well to oval racing? Because you said a little bit earlier that, you know, you had perhaps a little bit more of a self-preservation gene than some drivers. And yet oval racing strikes me as one of the most terrifying things you can you can do. I, I don't think I ever completely relaxed like somebody like Lion Dyke does around an oval. It, it, it's a fact that at any time you're doing a race lap above 220 miles an hour, things can go wrong very quickly with no fault of your own and they can be terminal. That's the price of admission. The first oval I ever drove on for Ganassi was in Phoenix. I was a day, a half, a day and a half into my first run and I come out of turn four and a half shaft breaks and the car turns sharp left into the wall and I bite out a chunk of my tongue. And I'm thinking, I, I really don't need to be here. This is silly. I mean, I, I, I could do nothing. There was nothing I could, there's nothing you can do because you're in these two walls. That's what your limitations are. And they call them a fence. I've hit fences and I've hit walls. It's not a fence, it's a wall. So that was my initiation to driving on an oval. Over time, you learn to tune the car so it telegraphs what it's doing better. And that's the way you drive an oval. You don't drive an oval like Villeneuve drove a Formula One car because you won't last very long. But it, but it is it's an exceptional feeling. I, I have gone 253 miles an hour at Indy and not lifted on any of the four corners. At 220, there's four corners. At 250 in the straightaway, there are not four corners. There are two corners. One and two is one corner, and three and four is another corner. You take a deep breath going in, you kind of aim where you think you should be, and you hold on. And if you get too close to the corner, you, you just try to barely move it. You can't move it too much because you've got to turn into the next one. And is the sense of satisfaction the same as a quali lap at Monaco, for example? Different, but physically, yes, T totally different. I mean, when you, when you do a lap, an average of 230, let's say at Indy, you're moving. I mean, it's, you're making a lot of decisions that you cannot change as you go through the corner. You just, and what you decide going in is what's going to happen through the whole corner. At, at Monaco, it's, that's different. I think qualifying Monaco is one of the most difficult qualifications you're doing anywhere. With Tyrrell, I wasn't qualified. I was not qualified to the last, I think it was 15 minutes. And not qualifying for Tyrrell in Monaco is as bad as it can be. I was having a problem 
on the entry to the pool section, where there's a curb on the left, which you would have to go over to get a straight run on the curb on the right, on the right hand of the car. Hit, and then the car would lift up, get really light, and it would come down just in time to break to get around the next right-hander. And I had avoided doing that because I thought, there's no, I can't control this. And I went out and did a lap and I pulled it off perfectly. And I don't remember where I qualified, it was somewhere in the middle, but that was one time and one time only that I managed to do that. And if I were to do it many other times, I'm sure I'd crash the majority of the times because when you land after that right-handed, your, your heels are bouncing off the bottom of the car. You're, you have to brake, you have to slow down. So Monaco is special. That's fascinating. How did winning the Indy 500 in 1998 change your life, the sense of satisfaction? A sense of relief more than a satisfaction. My father was still alive. And I remember on the cool down lap, remembering scenes of when we went to the go-kart track together and things he would say. And that was big. That cool down lap was was, um, gratifying because I got to call him afterwards. After I won my first Formula 3 race, I went to those little red telephone things you have in England, the telephone booths, and I remember calling him, telling him, I won, I, I just won. <laughs> the second call was a lot calmer. But, but it, it, as an American, winning Indy is a big deal. And it's not something you have to explain to anybody. You don't have to say what Indianapolis is. Everybody knows. What so it was, it was, it was uh, gratifying, exciting. It was worth the wait. Am I frustrated I did not win a handful of Formula One races? Absolutely, but that was a bomb. Even with that win at Indy, do you consider your time in Formula One as the peak of your career? Absolutely. Indy was very important for me as an American race car driver. I don't know if it's true, but my parents told me that when they they passed through Indy, the year my mother was pregnant with me and they watched the race, I have a feeling it might be bullshit, but... I take that for gospel that it's true. I'm very proud to have done that. I love the fact that my family name is on that trophy. I love the fact that I raced someplace that Jim Clark raced and Stewart raced and Rint tried it and said no. And Alan Jones tried it and said, no, thank you. You have to find ways to put the fear of having an accident so far back in your head at Indy to be able to be on the limit, which you have to do on those last 20 or 30 laps if you're going to win the race. All Indy is, is 90% of the time you're trying to stay in that group and not have an accident. And then as you get closer to that last lap, you just keep doubling your bet, doubling your bet, doubling your bet. So when a guy, you've done both Formula One and Indy, obviously, when a guy like Alonso takes on the challenge, how impressed are you by what Fernando did back in 2017? Equally, can you relate to the frustrations of last year when he didn't qualify for Indy and what he's got to go through this year in a couple of months' time? And If I were to pick a, a, a driver now to say, as a character, he's my favorite from one, I would definitely say it's Alonso. But to have the courage to come to the United States for one hundredth, just talk about the economics of it, one hundredth of what he makes in Formula One, five times the risk, against drivers who don't know him, who are going to do everything possible to trip him up. And yet he did it, came back a second time to do it and didn't qualify. And he didn't throw his toys out of his pram. He didn't go, oh, poor me. I suspect 
it's possible he might come back and do it again. But he did such a good job. It was just, it was so exciting to see a driver from a totally different background come and try something new with the downside of failing, of making a mistake or something be, something going wrong is enormous. I mean, I, I can understand why Hamilton would never do it. Well, why put yourself at risk? Well, well you know, you, you, do you want to be part of history? Well, that's a good reason why you should do it if you want to be part of history. But if that is not something that's really important for you, I, I mean, any logic, there's, you can't, there's no logical explanation as to why you would go do it other than you're racing in the same place where Clark did. You're racing in the same place where greats like Stewart. And to come there and win it, if you're capable of winning it, then you're in a totally different category. How much are you following Formula One these days? We've talked about Hamilton, yes, and we've obviously got Alonso coming back next year. But when you look at the young crop of guys coming through, if I, if I mention names to you like Max Verstappen or Charles Leclerc, you're giving me a thumbs up across the Zoom. Which one, Max or Charles? To both of them. Okay. I'm very close to the Ferrari people, and they say that Leclerc is the real, real deal. And it was nice to see him win. That was nice. Don't forget, I, I, am, in, I am part of Italian, so there's nothing <laughs> in Formula One that's American other than the ownership and Haas, so it's easy for me to focus on Ferrari. And Verstappen, is, and to watch how he passes, his, his passing is uh, interesting. And he gets away with it. Yeah, he's impetuous, isn't he? Final thoughts, actually. You just mentioned Haas. Were you ever tempted when you had your own team to come over and have a crack at Formula One with an American team? I'm, I'm loath to say this, but I don't see any road where Formula One will ever reach the success that NASCAR has with the American public. And I don't think that takes away anything from Formula One. Why do you say that? It, it just, it can't find traction. It couldn't, it, it just, it just can't break through all of the sports noise that is in the United States. There's just not enough people that follow it. They, they need American race car drivers. They need a lot of American race car drivers. They need American race car drivers that are capable of being in Ferrari and in McLaren. Then all of a sudden people will follow. So that's what, that's what it takes. We need an, a, a front-running American driver. When um, Sergio Perez was ruled out of the British Grand Prix uh, because of these positive COVID tests, I saw that Alexander Rossi on social media put a little note out saying, uh, Racing Point, have you got my number or something like that? Imagine if he'd come over and done that. And if he would have done well, then he would have, the door would have opened again. But he can, yeah. he can win all the IndyCar races he wants. It's, that, that, that isn't what drives a Formula One team to hire somebody. And he's, he's a very, he did very well in it. He's had some phenomenal results in Indy. But it's a great sport. I, I've been very lucky. I, I was very lucky that my life took the road of racing. I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change one thing. Well, Eddie, thank you so much for your time. It's been a wonderful chat. I've really enjoyed it. I hope you have too. It's been cathartic in a way, I hope. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't do these and I don't plan on doing another one. So I hope it came out okay. <laughs> great stuff. Thank you very much for your time. Well, what did you make of that? How different might Eddie's career have been had he had a manager during those early years in particular? Had he not given up on Ferrari, would they have given him a race seat? Maybe, just maybe. And then Eddie might have been a multiple race winner. He certainly had the talent. There are so many ifs, buts and maybes in racing. And as Eddie said at the end, 
He survived a lethal era of the sport when many of his colleagues didn't. And for that, there's a lot to be grateful for. Eddie, you've got one hell of a story. Thanks for sharing it. It was great to chat. Well, that's almost it for another week. But before I go, let's have a rummage through the virtual mailbag to see what you're saying about the show. Many of you loved hearing from George Russell during the build-up to the British Grand Prix. What a talent that man is. Matt Steele got in touch to say this. Very interesting chat with George Russell. As an Aussie, it's difficult to cheer for an Englishman in anything. But if he is the future of Formula One, then the sport is in a great spot. Looking forward to when his time comes to be challenging at the front. Couldn't agree more, Matt. I love chatting to George because he's such an engaging character and there's no doubting his speed. Let's hope he gets his chance soon enough. Some Grace said this. I'm so impressed by Russell's emotional intelligence, poise and generosity in addition to his talent. Now, that's a good point, Some Grace, about his emotional intelligence. Knowing how to read a situation and what to say is such an important skill for anyone and particularly a racing driver. And I was intrigued by this message from Carson Schlem on YouTube, who said, Am I the only one who doesn't want George to go to Merck and instead bring Williams back to its former glory days? If Williams works out its aero and other car problems, George would be the perfect driver to bring that dream to reality. That would make an incredible comeback story for not just Williams, but Russell himself. Just a thought. Carson, wouldn't that be something? As Claire Williams says, she'd move heaven and earth to make him a champion in a Williams car. Now, unfortunately, that's it for this week. But please keep your messages coming because we read each and every one of them. And if you haven't done that yet and you feel the urge, I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. And having scrolled through your reviews on Apple Podcasts recently, all I can say is thank you for your kind comments. We love making the show for you and are eternally grateful that you're part of the conversation each week. Thanks for listening, guys. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out.